There's an apocryphal story that sometime around the year 1330 CE, the legendary Japanese swordsmith Masamune accidentally knocked some molybdenum into his latest creation. Rather than scrap and start over, he decided to finish the work, because you never know, right? That turned out to be a great idea, because the sword he forged was incredibly strong and practically unbreakable. Masamune would go on to create similarly storied swords, made strong by the power of molybdenum. But he didn't pass the recipe on to anyone else, so this technology died when he did. It would be nearly 600 years before anyone would discover this secret again. Supposedly, a German chemist who analyzed one of Masamune's weapons. It's about that time, as we'll see later, that we start inching toward verifiable stories again. Whether any of this actually happened or not, it's in the right spirit. For one brief moment in time, molybdenum was a secret weapon. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're taking shots at molybdenum. Once more, for those in the back, mo-lib-den-um. It's definitely one of the more notorious elements in terms of pronunciation. When one Dr. G. W. Sargent was presenting a paper on today's element in Detroit in 1921, he started by saying, Although the author has used the word molybdenum for years, every time he pronounces it, he thinks of the slang expression, You set a mouthful, and sympathizes with those who utter it for the first time. Strange to think that such a tongue-tying name isn't even its own, but borrowed from another, much more famous metal. Molybdos is the ancient Greek word for lead, because for most of history, people figured that molybdenum-containing minerals and graphite were the same as lead. It's an understandable mistake to make. All three of those things are dark minerals sometimes occur together and will leave a dark mark when rubbed against paper. Incidentally, that's why the writing material in a pencil is called lead, even though it's made of graphite. Carl Wilhelm Scheele, of green arsenic fame, finally set the record straight. He was the first to identify and differentiate between the three materials in 1778, with the Swedish chemist Peter Jakob Helm isolating it a few years later. After that, nothing really happened with molybdenum for over a century. It wasn't terribly common, and even when it was found, it was hard to extract. And then, even once a substantial amount was isolated, it was too difficult to work with on an industrial scale. 
one of the largest molybdenum deposits in the world, exists in Colorado. Fittingly enough, near a town called Leadville. Since it was still essentially worthless at the dawn of the 20th century, Otis King purchased the mineral rights atop that deposit for a paltry sum. Determined to make a good return on investment, King motivated his superintendent to invent a new method of extracting molybdenum from the ore. This method was called flotation, and it was a pretty revolutionary industrial technology. It works by making a slurry of the ore, mixing it up with other chemicals in an enormous vat. This mixture is formulated so that the desired element, in this case molybdenum, will float on top of all the carbon, iron, sulfur, or whatever else happens to be in the mixture. It can then be skimmed off the top, like cream from milk. Flotation was a much cheaper method of extraction than what had come before, and King went wild. In 1915, his mining company produced 5,824 pounds of element 42. That was more molybdenum than anyone had ever seen. That was more molybdenum than anyone even wanted. He had surpassed the global annual demand for molybdenum by 50%. Single-handedly, he had deluged the market for his only product. In the same way the Hall-Erul process reduced the price of aluminum more than 600%, King's molybdenum was rendered even more worthless than before he pulled it out of the ground. His miners took to calling their hall, Molly be damned. Whether out of amusement or pity, someone published this result in a mineralogical bulletin for the U.S. government before the end of 1915. Most readers would have skipped right over the news, or perhaps given a slightly amused smile before moving on. Max Schott was not most people. Schott was an employee of the American Metal Company. He started at the company as a young man working in its New York offices. But by this time, Schott had come to be an important and shadowy figure for the company. You might call him a fixer. This government bulletin caught the attention of Schott's employers and they promptly dispatched him to Colorado to convince King to give up his claim. Schott arrived in early 1916 with plenty of muscle in tow and began a campaign of harassment. Assault and theft were perfectly valid tactics in their book, but so were frivolous lawsuits. Legality was of no consequence. Schott sought to torment King by any and all means. King hired Jimmy Two-Gun Adams for protection, but that didn't stop King from getting mugged and thrown off the side of a cliff. He only survived due to a fortunate landing in a deep snowbank. Sadly, this is not a tale where the underdog takes the day. 
Beleaguered and broke, King accepted $40,000 from American Metal and disappeared. For the next two years, Schott headed the Climax Mining Company that drew molybdenum from the earth and sent it to its parent company, American Metal. The lawsuits were over, and the company made its money through the entirely legitimate metals trade. No one had any reason to suspect that every last ounce of American metals output was shipped across the Atlantic to supply the German army during World War I. In medieval Europe, just about the safest place you could be was behind the walls of a fortification. The threat of war was constant, and that war had a common shape. Pitched battles where both sides choose a time and place to run toward each other make for easy reenactments, but they've never been as popular as they appear in movies. Outside of naval warfare, most battles in medieval Europe consisted of an attacking force laying siege to a walled city or fortress. These battles were about as lopsided as you could imagine. From their protected and elevated position, defenders could rain arrows, bolts, hot oil, and stones down upon the attackers, whose job was mostly to run uphill as fast as they could without getting killed. If they made it as far as the defenders' walls, sappers might be able to demolish them, but the odds were not in their favor. Cunning invaders invented siege engines, which brought various advantages to attacking forces. For instance, catapults allowed attackers to launch projectiles from a safe distance, and siege towers protected and elevated the aggressors on their approach. In response, defenders built more robust fortifications. Sometimes these innovations, while practical, were fairly straightforward. For instance, concentric castles required attackers to surmount multiple rings of high walls. In addition to significantly increasing the time and energy involved, it had the added effect of corralling invaders within small, contained areas called killing fields. Either side leapfrogged the other in technological advantage for centuries. With the trebuchet, an army could launch heavy stones, firebombs, and even diseased corpses from a great distance with deadly accuracy. Moats, outposts, and battlefield obstacles kept attacking forces from advancing too quickly. Historically, we can see that the balance remained strongly in favor of the defenders, especially for cities. Take Constantinople. Plenty of other people have tried. Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine Empire, and its walls were famously impenetrable. The city was triple fortified, first by a moat 20 meters wide and 7 meters deep, with a short wall on the inner edge. Behind that was a tall stone wall with towers 
from which archers could pick off invaders in the moat. The city's third and final wall was its most impressive, 12 meters high and 5 meters thick. Siege engines were useless against such a substantial defense. In real life, those walls worked even better than they sound on paper. The city held off attacks in the year 678 CE, again in 718, and yet again in 821, 823, 860, 941, and 1043. The city did finally suffer a couple embarrassing losses, most notably in 1204, when Christian crusaders suddenly, bafflingly, decided to sack their allied city. But the spring of 1453 was truly a catastrophe. Mehmed II believed it was his destiny to conquer Constantinople. The brazen 21-year-old Sultan of the Ottoman Turks had been preparing for that fight practically his entire life. The Byzantine Empire was already in decline by this point, but taking its great walled capital would not be easy by any means. However, Mehmed had an advantage that none of his predecessors possessed. Cannons. Gunpowder was already known in various parts of the world for centuries, especially in its form as the Fire Lance, essentially a black powder-fueled flamethrower. Guns were not yet widespread, but cannons had already been used in Europe and East Asia. Now, the Queen of Cities was in its sights. Constantinople's Theodosian walls could easily deflect arrows and catapult projectiles, but a thousand-pound ball of marble, traveling 600 miles per hour, is a completely different matter. As the engineer who made these cannons claimed, I have examined the walls of the city in great detail. I can shatter to dust not only these walls with the stones from my gun, but the very walls of Babylon itself." He was trying to sell it, of course, but he was not overselling it. One of the cannons Mehmed brought to battle had a barrel 27 feet long and took so long to load that it could only fire seven times in a day. But that was no problem. He had brought dozens of smaller cannons, too. Equally potent as the cannon's destructive force was their ability to inflict terror and damage morale. Imagine what it must have been like to hear a thunderous boom on a sunny day to feel the ground shake beneath your feet, and to see an ominous cloud of smoke on the horizon. All that before the world around you is demolished and thrown in every direction. Constantinople was protected by water on three sides, so any invaders 
had to plan for a naval battle on top of their landborne assault. To thwart this, the defenders had blocked its inlet with a chain that physically barred any ships from entering. So, the people of Constantinople must have been terribly surprised on April 22nd when they awoke to see their harbor full of Ottoman ships, even though the Byzantine navy had seen nothing and the chain blocking the inlet was still intact. That's because Mehmed had ordered his sailors to go around it. Not by sea, by land. Overnight, the Ottomans hauled 70 of their ships out of the water, and with the raw strength of hundreds of oxen and men, dragged them across the land for one full mile to a position where they could launch them into the bay. This audacious move brought the Ottoman navy to Constantinople's back door. And you can probably guess what all of those ships had on board. Cannons. The guns were even more effective on this front against the city's sea walls, which were less imposing than those facing the land. After another month of softening up the city, Mehmed launched an all-out assault. Inside the walls, one of the gates had been carelessly left unlocked, granting the Turks free entry. They quickly raised a flag, and Constantinople's soldiers scattered in a panic. Mehmed's army would almost certainly have been victorious anyway, but that is a particularly shameful way for such a storied city to fall. And it fell hard. The Ottomans pillaged without remorse, and worse. 4,000 citizens were killed, and more than 10 times as many were sold into slavery. Priceless treasures were lost forever. Later that day, Mehmed strode into the city's most famous Christian church, the Hagia Sophia, and declared that now it was a mosque. That's not subtle, but it is symbolic. Constantinople had been a Christian city, possibly the most powerful in the world. Now those days were over. Constantinople became the capital of the sprawling Ottoman Empire, which nearly doubled in size during Mehmed's 30-year reign. That may have been the most pivotal use of cannons in history up till that point, and for several years after, too. The day the city fell is one of several markers historians use to mark the end of the medieval period. But the arms race never stopped. Moats and killing fields were obsolete. In the age of gunpowder, forts were built to maximize the area defenders could blanket with artillery fire, usually by building them in a star or polygonal shape, ensuring clean, straight lines of sight. Engineers learned how to craft ammunition that was both heavier and more aerodynamic and military minds discovered that grinding black powder to a flowery consistency could triple its explosive power. 
In the 17th century, Swedish King Gustav II transformed the battlefield by putting away the big guns, instead focusing on smaller, more mobile cannons that only required two or three operators. Napoleon heavily depended upon cannons to handle affairs, both foreign and domestic. By the turn of the 20th century, artillery had become a highly sophisticated science. By comparison, tanks, airplanes, and submarines were practically brand new inventions. They were used as instruments of war, but they lacked the maturity and grim efficiency of the tried-and-true bombardment. World War I was overwhelmingly defined by the widespread use of artillery. Soldiers fought on torn-up fields of mud laced with barbed wire. Explosive bombshells fell from the sky with neither method nor mercy. Without warning, ten men could instantly become nothing but sound and dust. These were the conditions that forced armies to adopt trench warfare, where soldiers dug themselves into a ditch to provide cover while they slowly struggled to win mere inches on the battlefield. The shelling would only cease after dark, when weak and weary men would scamper above ground to repair fences or gather supplies. By a wide margin, Artillery fire was the leading cause of the war's 20 million deaths. Even those whose bodies were spared from the supersonic onslaught of white-hot metal were afflicted with equally severe scars on their psyche. Shrapnel shells, gas projectiles, railway cannons, and more ghoulishly ingenious advances created this merciless environment. But for every engineer who stayed awake at night imagining a higher form of killing, there were just as many who simply wanted to show off a gun that was bigger than everyone else's. Leading this effort was Krupp AG, a German weapons conglomerate founded in the 16th century. As one of Europe's largest, wealthiest companies, they had an R&D department that was well suited to the task. By the opening days of the war in 1914, they had created a monster. A super-heavy cannon that could deliver a 16-inch, 2,200-pound shell to a target over five miles away. Clearly, this must have been a large machine. It was so large that it took six hours for a crew of 240 to assemble the thing on site, and it weighed 47 tons. Its great bulk lent the gun a very memorable nickname, Big Bertha. It performed as well as the Germans had hoped. With only two such guns, the German army laid waste to fortresses in Belgium in just five days. This kept clear the path to France, and significantly affected the rest of the war. There was one major problem. 
These monumentally large guns required impressive quantities of black powder to deliver their shells, and the Big Berthas were subject to rapid wear and tear. After only a couple of days, the gun's barrel would become scorched and melt beyond the point of usefulness. This problem did not last long. German scientists knew that while steel melts around 2500 degrees Fahrenheit, alloying it with a small amount of molybdenum could allow that steel to withstand temperatures nearly twice as hot. Supposedly, this information was gleaned by whichever German chemist had analyzed Masamune's unbreakable sword. But Germany didn't have any such resources within its borders. What they had was full control over a molybdenum mining corporation in the United States. That would do just fine. See, Max Schott's Climax Mine Company was a subsidiary of American Metal, but despite the patriotic name, American Metal was in turn fully owned by a German company called Metalgesellschaft. All the molybdenum that American miners pulled out of the Colorado ground was getting sent directly to the Kaiser's army. This went unnoticed for the longest time, largely because the United States didn't enter the war until 1917, one year before its end. At that point, the U.S. government did seize American Metal's assets, but it made little difference. By then, the company had supplied enough molybdenum to last the German army for years. And the German army soon found a use for Element 42 even more intimidating than the legendary Big Bertha's. The 7 a.m. Good Friday service at the Parisian church Saint Gervais Saint Prote must have been especially solemn on March 29, 1918. The Holy Day is already a somber affair, focusing on the suffering, crucifixion, and death of Jesus Christ. On top of that, the war had dragged on for four years. The cost of living was skyrocketing, and what population remained had to deal with food shortages and influenza outbreaks. Church services provided one of the few remaining semblances of a normal life. Then, without warning, at 7.18 a.m., the cathedral's vaulted stone ceiling came crashing down upon those devout worshippers. Panic followed. An attack, but how? From where? No one had heard any airplanes approach, nor any cannons fire. The first theory was that the Germans must have dropped a bomb from an extremely high-flying Zeppelin. A new explosion rocked the city every 15 minutes. Keen eyes quickly deduced that these were not bombs, but artillery shells. The truth of the matter was almost unbelievable. Paris was being shelled by artillery stationed beyond the forest of Saint-Gobain. 
nearly 80 miles away. No other gun in the world had a range even half as impressive. For reference, an equivalent situation would be a cannoneer setting up right in front of Philadelphia's City Hall, and firing explosive shells into the heart of Midtown Manhattan. An American ambassador described the scene at the church. The appalling destruction wrought by this shell is probably not equaled by any single discharge of any hostile gun in the cruelty and horrors of its results. In no other one spot in Paris, even where poverty had gathered on that holy day to worship, could destruction of life have been so great. Nearly a hundred mangled corpses lying in the morgues, with almost as many seriously wounded, attested to the measure of the toll exacted. This was the German artillery's crowning glory. A 380mm naval gun fitted with a 34m molybdenum reinforced tube, capable of firing shells faster than 5,000 feet per second. This weapon actually shot its ammunition clear into the stratosphere, 25 miles above the Earth. The first projectile to ever reach such a height. It was officially named the Kaiser Wilhelm Geschütz, but everyone called it the Paris Gun. That's fitting. It had been designed and built for the express purpose of bombarding the French capital from safely behind German lines. Paris remained under siege from these guns for 140 days, averaging 20 shells per day. Paris suffered considerable property damage, and ultimately 250 people were killed, and another 620 injured. This is awful, but scarcely compares to the German bombing of London, which resulted in 5,000 casualties. That's because the super gun wasn't meant to inflict maximum damage. It wasn't even capable of targeting specific locations within Paris. The Germans just knew that their shells would probably land somewhere in the city. No, the Paris gun was an instrument of terror. By subjecting the citizens to constant, unpredictable shelling, the German army hoped to break French morale, much like Mehmed's cannon fire instilled fear in the citizens of Constantinople. The Paris gun was never deployed anywhere else. As the Allies closed in toward the end of the war, the artillery crews broke down the behemoth weapons and shipped them in pieces back to Germany. Presumably, they were destroyed upon arrival, because those pieces were never found. Had it even succeeded in its campaign of terror? William Sharp, the ambassador who witnessed the devastation at Saint-Gervais-Saint-Proté, would have us believe otherwise. The exceptional circumstances under which this tragedy occurred both as to the sacred character of the day and the place, have greatly aroused the indignation of the people of Paris. Instead of terrorizing the people, 
shells of the great cannons, as well as the bombs dropped from the German airplanes, only serve to strengthen the resolve of the French to resist. To the last man, if necessary, the invasion of such a foe. It seems that this mega-weapon, impressive though it was, completely backfired. Perhaps the Germans hadn't expected the citizens of Paris to possess molybdenum backbones. Element 42 was never again so widely used in war. By the time World War II rolled around, engineers had moved on to molybdenum's downstairs neighbor, tungsten, an even stronger refractory metal. So unless you have access to museum-grade military artifacts, you'll want to look elsewhere when stocking your element collection. Molybdenum's similarities to graphite are more than just skin deep. When ground to a powder, both make for a superior, solid lubricant. Molybdenum especially excels in high-pressure, high-temperature environments, but it's also popularly used in a much less extreme situation, as axle lubricant for Pinewood Derby cars. Ask your nearest Boy Scout for assistance. As far as I can tell, only one character in all entertainment is made of molybdenum. Crow, one of the victims subject to an endless barrage of cheesy movies on the television show Mystery Science Theater 3000. In episode 814, Riding with Death, he casually mentions this fact. It's confirmed in episode 908, Touch of Satan, when Mike Nelson piles rocks on top of Crow and compliments his durable molybdenum frame. Sadly, this information is almost certainly irrelevant, unless you are trapped on the satellite of love. Back on Earth, we all have a little molybdenum in our bodies. It's a minuscule amount but it performs a critical task. As part of the enzyme nitrogenase, it cracks the ironclad bond between two nitrogen atoms, converting them to ammonia. All known life is utterly dependent upon this process to exist. I suppose you could say that element 42 is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. Show notes are packed this week with stories about music, movies, and dead-end research. To read those, visit episodictable.com slash m Oh. Also, there are only three more days to nominate the show for a People's Choice Podcast Award. If you'd like to help out, visit episodictable.com to find out how. If you're listening to this in the future, perhaps you wouldn't mind leaving a review on iTunes instead. 
Next time, we'll stay in the lab to synthesize an episode on Technetium. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you that, crucially, no one ever figured out what the question was. Thank you.